Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. Let's get started. It's late. Yeah. Uh, I want to go. I want to go to bed, and I still have to write a review of one of the movies we're going to be talking about today. Oh, okay. So you, tell maybe me you can help one. me. No. Nope. Oh, okay. Um, no, it'll be the last one. Uh, the last movie before we get to the TV stuff. But I will start with a movie I already wrote a review of um, because it came out uh, a while ago. We haven't done one of these in a couple weeks, and that's Gary Marshall's Mother's Day. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, and it was not, it's not a good movie. It's not, uh, it's, I guess I could say that you'll get what you expect, but even then it's, uh, it, it just seems very low rent, Yeah, the the movie. And it almost seems like, a low rent version of these holiday movies that Gary Marshall has done because it doesn't have the as expansive a cast as Valentine's day or new year's Eve. And it doesn't have as many big names and it has Julie Roberts and Jennifer Aniston. Um, but then you've got like a Jason Sudeikis who's great, but it's yeah. not a major star. Kate Hudson's not um, the star she used to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it does have, um, to people, a couple, a number of people that I'm a big, very big fan of. Uh, I've always been a fan of the work of Sarah Chalk, um, the second Becky uh, from oh, yes, Roseanne, yes. and then okay, from yeah. Scrubs. Um, and uh, it also has one Cameron Esposito is in the movie. Oh, nice! A comedian of whom I uh, am very fond uh, and a huge fan, and have seen her do stand up many, many times. Uh, so that's great. Yeah, but uh, yeah, the movie itself is um, slapdash, lightweight. And, um, it's easy to make fun of. I wrote a review that is kind of make fun E and there's been a lot sure. of making fun of it on film Twitter, uh, among the critics who have seen it. So I don't want to pile on too much, but it does seem, it's just real, real lazy stuff. Um, and not an ounce of subtlety in it. Um, yeah. and even though it has a cast of, I'm a fan of Jennifer Aniston and I'm a fan of Jason Sudeikis yeah. and I'm a fan of Timothy Oliphant is in it. Oh, nice. Uh, I mentioned Sarah Chalk and Cameron Esposito. Like there's a lot of people in it that I, that I like and I have nothing against Julia Roberts. Um, and they're the charms of the cast do grease the wheels a little bit. Sure. Keep things moving a little bit, but, uh, it just seems like it's the idea that these are all overlapping stories that are connected seems forced. Like, Jennifer Aniston and Kate Hudson are friends, I suppose, like, because they they have two scenes where they talk to one another, okay. but we have no sense of like, how are they friends or how yeah. do they know each other? Or like, why are, why is she calling to tell them? It's, it just seems like a way of, let's have these two characters talk so that this is, this gives the feeling of all being connected. Um, but there's actually nothing to do. These stories have nothing to do with one another. Um, and then it also has some real, on the note, the one that everyone has, uh, every, almost every review has pointed this out. Um, and rightfully so, because it, I laughed out loud at it when it happened in the theater, as did most of the critics in the screening room. Like um, in a, not, it, not an intentional okay, way. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Britt Robertson's character is essentially giving her character's backstory. Okay. To Kate Hutchins. She's saying, I was this and this. She's essentially saying everything. Um, and then it's about the fact that her, um, she was given up for adoption by her mother. Right. And then after saying everything, she then says essentially the, the log line, the abstract of the monologue. She just, she just yeah. said, she said, I have abandonment issues. Oh, <laughs> there's another one that I, uh, laughed at where, um, Jason Sudeikis and his daughter are watching a video of their late mother singing karaoke and having a blast. Okay. And when it ends, the daughter says, mom loved karaoke. (laughs) 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 All right. I guess I did pile on a little bit. Well, Uh, that's the thing. Like you, you, you said the magic word, which is lazy. uh Like few movies, like few movies will make me want to pile on them more than ones that like you have the resource, like you clearly have the money, you have a talented cast. How could this not be at the very least? fine right you know but that's the thing when you're but i think they're shooting for fine yeah you know you should be shooting for good or great and if you land it fine eh, all right but it's just like yeah we're going for uh adequate and passable it's like oh okay well then that is a complete lack of ambition yeah and just like and yeah i have abandonment issues yeah come on and also a lot of things feel like the 
first take, like, cause I, like I said, I like Jennifer Aniston, but there's a part where she like, cause her ex-husband has, uh, married a younger woman and is doing mm-hmm. things, um, with her kids, like without her approval or with things yeah. that she, that they never did together when they were married. And so she's got all this mounting frustration. At one point she's in her parking lot in the, in her car in the parking lot and just starts like screaming, like to herself, just screaming at the top of her lungs, all her frustrations. And it really feels like she, I can see Jennifer Aniston being inhibited about it. Yeah. And it feels like you needed a couple more takes for her to get into this, but yeah. I don't know, maybe you were losing daylight or something. It's like, cause even, even as the scene goes on, it gets a little better. Uh, Do you think it's, a and situa- it also, it's a, you know, uh, PG 13 movie. So there's one fuck yeah. and Jennifer Aniston gets it and she does well with it. She, she works wonders with it. Uh, not wonders, but she, um, uh, I just like her delivery of it when she finds out that her husband is taking her kids to Paris, something they never did. Mm-hmm. Um, she's never been to Paris, something she always wanted to do. And she says, uh, why does it be Paris? Couldn't he take them to London or fucking Disneyland? <laughs> and that made me laugh. <laughs> not bad. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if it's a situation where Gary Marshall is old. He is an old guy now. Mm-hmm. And, some some filmmakers as they get older that they don't let them slow that down but it's understandable if they did and perhaps it's just like yeah we're not going to do a lot of takes yeah we're not going to have this huge cast to manage we're going to pare everything down and he's got to make the early bird dinner right (laughs) exactly got to hitch his pants up to his armpits well look we all know how it works so okay mother's day that's available on the website right that uh that that review review. yeah okay so i saw a movie david you've seen this movie okay Probably many times. I don't oh. know. Uh, is I it Honey, it. I Shrunk the Kids? It is Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, <laughs> yes. No, David, although I think it actually might have come out the same year. It is Warren Beatty's Dick Tracy. Oh, yeah, I have seen that movie many times. I saw that. Okay, so real quick, and we forgot to, men- we got, we forgot to mention it on the episode that will be going up in a few days, uh, that a reminder to everybody that the... Tim Burton, Joel Schumacher, Batman commentaries are available at battleshippretension.com. Uh, we recorded them all in one day. David and I are there the whole time. And then we have a roster of guests, uh, writers for the show, guests for the show, comedians, uh, actors uh, come in and weigh in on on these films. And it winds up being a lot of fun because especially when you get to when we got to Batman Forever and, and Batman and Robin. Uh, trying to find the positivity because so many people have talked about how negative these films are and how bad they are. It's like, okay, that's easy. I want to try and find what's good about them. And then you, and I guess both of us found in the Joel Schumacher films that, you know, these days when people, the idea of, of queer cinema is not new, right? but it's something that I think has become a bit more um, prolific. I'd say in the last few years, um, I don't know. It's uh, I can't quite think of, of how best to describe it. But anyway, it's a thing that I think is on more people's minds. Sure, and so okay, yeah. as we were watching these films, like, well, Joel Schumacher is gay and he's not, he's certainly not ashamed of it. He puts it out there. And, and I think Batman forever and certainly Batman and Robin, I think have that quality to them. And that's something that you and I didn't think about beforehand. And only as we're watching the, these movies, do we realize, Oh yeah, these are, I mean, we all kind of knew, mm-hmm. but boy, oh boy, like it's really overt in a way that it's just like, maybe these films are more personal than, uh, than we thought for Joel. Schumacher. Yeah. I think that's, that's the tenor of the conversation having changed. We're not even talking about, so I was supposed to talk about Dick Tracy. Well, I, I'll, I'll, um, I'll connect the two in a moment, but like, uh, it's sort of like, it used to be, I think there used to be the easy joke would, would be to point at Batman and Robin and be like, Oh, can you believe a gay guy made that? And that's yeah. like a shitty joke. But now I think that we've gotten over that kind of, or at least the more enlightened among us have gotten over that kind of juvenile joke. Sure. Um, we can actually see the merit in yeah. in him, uh, including uh, a lot of, especially with the character of Robin, I think there's a lot of homosexual signifiers to his look. Sure. Um that I, uh, that, that I found really, uh, yeah, personal is a good way to say it. It went from, it went from, can you, you know, can you believe a gay guy directed that to, a gay guy directed that. Yeah. <laughs> and he brought, as, as every filmmaker will do, he brought a lot of himself to it and what he finds interesting. And I don't know. And so the reason that I brought it up is because, um, the thing that I met, wound up talking a lot about with Batman forever and Batman and Robin, uh, 
and this this probably would have been in my mind anyway, but I talked a lot about its use of color. And had I not seen Dick Tracy in a theater the night before, mm-hmm. I might not have and been, as I always am, astounded by the use of color in Dick Tracy. Um, I might not have, I might not have been so attuned to that in, in the Schumacher Batman films. Dick Tracy is a visual marvel in every possible way. I, when I think of Warren Beatty as a director, I don't think of a particularly interesting director. I saw reds and it bored the hell out of me. And yeah, he won best director for it. And then everyone promptly forgot about it. Um, and then, and I remember what else he did. Uh, I think he Bullworth? co-directed Oh Bullworth, which I which I do like quite yeah. a bit. But I see that mostly as a function of the script, which I think he also, which I think he co-wrote. But and I think he co-directed Heaven Can Wait with Buck Henry. Correct? Uh, I don't know. I've actually never seen that. It's not a bad movie. So, but that's the thing. He's he's not necessarily a bad director, but I don't think of him as a particularly notable one. And then you see Dick Tracy, and you see this like I didn't know he had this in him as any kind of artist. Uh, as an actor that he would want to be a part of anything like this, but he, this, this was clearly a labor of love and he clearly knew exactly how he wanted to make it. He wanted to make it as close to the, was it Chester Gould, mm-hmm. the Chester Gould comic strip in its use of color and really just trying to make like, okay, we're going to have these villains, these grotesque villains. And uh, rather than have kind of, you know, an odd interpretation of the, we're going to do it as, as <laughs> right. overtly as possible. Flat top. Got it. You know, prune face. Got it. And when you watch it, it's just this miracle of art direction and cinematography and makeup and costuming. It just looks like it would be so much fun to make and it's so much fun to watch. And it's, and it really is, you know, when we think of German expressionism, you know, to once again, to talk about, you know, these Batman films, like when you watch Tim Burton's Batman films, you see German expression, expressionism all over that. But Dick Tracy is that too, that like the city they live in, the way, the, the very fact that the, the villains are as ugly on the outside as they are on the inside. Mm-hmm. Like that's an expressionistic mindset. And Dick Tracy is a film that I think deserves to be rediscovered. Um, and so if you're, if you're a listener and you like German expressionism and you like, uh, a really str- just really striking visuals, Go watch Dick Tracy. I, I own it on DVD. I haven't actually watched it on DVD, but one thing that I've learned uh, as we... Uh, sorry, Blu-ray. Blu-ray, Blu-ray yeah. pardon me. Uh, one thing that I've learned, because um, I was recently re-watching uh, uh, Alien on Blu-ray, and as we con- when we did the commentary for that, that Blu-ray looks beautiful. I think the Batman Blu-rays look beautiful, and I feel like if I were to throw in Dick Tracy, it would uh, blow my mind at how gorgeous it is. So Dick Tracy, 1990, Warren Beatty, marvelous film. Okay, uh, I saw, um, this is mostly going to be more recent, like newer films, okay. uh, because the older stuff that I saw is the stuff I saw at TCM Film Festival, which you will hear about in a few days on the mm-hmm. main, so I'm not going to talk about that stuff uh, twice. Um, I saw a film called Viva, yep. um, that uh, takes place in modern day Havana, um, and concerns a young man, probably about 20 years old who is um who does hair for drag queens at a cabaret his uh mother is has died his father is in prison and has been since he was three years old and he's never he doesn't know his father uh and he is low on money and um uh essentially starts his choices essentially boil down to becoming a prostitute or a drag performer and he um is fascinated by the drag performers that he does the, uh, the hair for. So he starts performing drag and just, uh, just then his father, whom he again, hasn't seen since he was three, uh, gets out of prison and Mm -hmm. comes to stay with him because it's, it is the family home that he's living in. So he moves back in. Uh, and of course there's a lot of contention there because the, um, father is not, uh, exactly pro gay or pro drag. Uh, and it's a, it's a really, it's a really interesting look at this community in Havana and, you know, shot, shot there. Um, and, uh, I think there's a lot of, um, charm and 
naturalism to the performances and by both by which I mean the performances of the actors and the drag performances we see, which are all uh, great. But as far as a story, you can probably guess based on the premise I've set up so far. Um, you you could probably guess how things unfold. It's yeah. pretty it's pretty conventional, conventionally sort of uh, heartwarming by the end. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, it, it it seems like it's. I'm not not upset that I saw it, but uh, I wouldn't really recommend it. It's it, it doesn't have much to offer outside of its setting and its look at Havana. Which if that is enough for you, then yeah, go go watch it. It's a nice look at Havana. But uh, I don't know, it's from the it's an Irish film in terms of hmm. its director is Irish and screenwriter I think and it's funded by the Irish Film Board. Um, Odd, yeah. But it's the guy who made. Do you remember a movie with Josh Hartnett and Alan Rickman and Rachel Griffiths called Blow Dry? Yes, it's not very good. I did not see it. Same director. Uh. That you don't hear so about that movie. So I would go to the art house or the <coughs> art. I mean, it was. In St. Louis, the the one of the landmark theaters, mm-hmm. all the time. That's just what I would do when I had a free weeknight or whatever. Like I would just go to movies alone all the time. And uh, my and my dad was like, I think trying to be supportive of things I was interested in was like, I'm going to come to you, come with you with you to one of these movies someday. And unfortunately for everyone involved, the movie ended up being blow dry. That mm-hmm. I was that I went to see uh, at the landmark theater at the Plaza Front Neck uh, that night. And uh, yeah, he. Never came to see a movie <laughs> yeah. like one in our house movie with me again. Uh, uh, it's just too bad. All right. Uh, what's next for you? David, it's odd that you talked about the movie that you just talked about because I saw the same movie. That's not, the, that's not where I wanted to end up. Um, so flamboyant performances that are really interesting and, and fun. Uh, a troublesome, hard-bitten father. Uh-huh. I saw for the first time Purple Rain. Okay. Which was recently re-released in theaters. Um, and you went to the theater to see it? I did. Oh, I was I was in Orlando. Uh, the, the film festival had not started yet. I, I went there a couple days early because my flight was going to be cheaper that way. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, and I knew some people. I know some people down there, so I was just hanging out with friends and stuff. And then on Wednesday night, I found myself with nothing to do. And so I saw... The Purple Rain was playing at a theater near me, and so I went to see it. I'd never seen it before. Have you seen it? Uh, yeah, not in the yeah. theater, on DVD. But. And uh, and I liked it quite a bit. Did you? Yeah. I feel like seeing to, the theater would be the way to see it. Uh, I would agree. I feel like I, I did have the thought, like, if I was just seeing this on my TV, I don't know if it would be that interesting. But when you think about it, a good portion of it is like, you know, like a concert film. Yeah, and, and that's the stuff that's great. Yeah, and Prince, you know, being larger than life and being like such a dynamic stage presence. I mean, when you're in the theater, it's like you can't get away from that. Um, and what I will say is that Morris Day uh-huh. is amazing. I love him so much. I could watch him. <laughs> Why, the, the only issue that I have with Morris Day is that he's not in every film. Um, <laughs> Dick Tracy would have been better with Morris Day. Sure, Viva, film probably, Viva, yeah. no question. That bumps it up at least half a letter grade. Um, and just and hit, like you know because the film is popular with 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 the exception of you know Clarence Williams the third like as a uh, Prince's father mm-hmm. and he does a pretty good job but like it's mostly non actors but they're performers. They're not necessarily actors, but they are used to performing and putting on a certain persona. And I think Prince does it, and he does an okay, he does an okay job. Uh, but Morris Day, he gets it every day of the week. I love watching him on stage, and I love watching him uh, it, just in dialogue scenes. Um, it's over the top and ridiculous, yeah. but I don't care. I, I love it. I remember being, I was probably pretty young, like middle school age, watching Comedy Central rerun, or... Saturday Night Live reruns on Comedy Central. Mm-hmm. The, and that was probably the first time I ever saw or heard of Morris Day in the time. Yeah. And it's, it has stuck with me for all these tw- of the 20 years. Uh, I, I, yeah, I really like that stuff. I think I was only familiar with it as a function of, I think it was like Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, where it's what, <laughs> like, you know, as much as I might crap on certain aspects of Kevin Smith, every once, like, he can embrace absurdity and randomness <clears throat> to a degree that I like. 
And the idea that Jay and Simon Bob's favorite band is the time uh-huh. is kind of amazing. <laughs> and so at the end of Jay and Simon Bob Strike Back, you have uh, Morris Day and the Time performing. And it was like their first time performing in any kind of public setting in years. Like they came out of retirement essentially to be in that film. Huh. And it actually brought them a lot of new fans. And so, uh, yeah, so I, but, I like Purple Rain in general quite a bit. It, it has, yeah, I mean, I feel like it's, it is the, the performance, the performance scenes yeah. are what are good. The story, you could watch either Rocky or eight mile and see a much better version of a similar, of the similar story. But you know what? I honestly think that because eight mile is, is, you know, it's musical in nature, but I feel like because of the musical scene that we're looking at in purple rain, uh, there's an inherent, an inherent melodrama to it that I'm okay with now. I feel like if I had seen this many years ago, I would have been like, okay, this is super cheesy and really over the top in its emotions. Um, watching it now, I feel like in order to match the scene, the, the performance scenes, if they had gone like really subtle and believable with it, I've been like, I don't, I don't buy any of this. Uh, like these, it's like two different movies happening, but by keeping everything a little bit heightened and keeping the melodrama up here, uh, and not a gritty re- melodrama like you would find in Rocky mm-hmm. and eight mile by having it be the, the essential eighties melodrama type. Uh, I feel like it, uh, it, it all, it all hangs together. I mean, yes, it's not doing it. It's not, certainly isn't breaking any new ground, but as one complete thing, uh, I think it does pretty well. And I was very happy. I saw it. All right. Um, I saw, uh, I watched the movie, uh, from, I think 1987 that, uh, shot factory put out. That is, I, I can't, uh, I can't really recommend this movie. Okay. Uh, unless you are the type of person this movie is made for, in which case, good luck with all that. Cause it is a piece of just nasty, sadistic, pure exploitation. Okay. Uh, called women's prison massacre. <laughs> and so again, I guess sort of like mother's day, if you are the type of person who wants to see a movie called women's prison massacre, you will probably be satisfied. Sure. But it is an, just a nasty movie in terms oh. of, uh, it's exploitation of its, uh, actresses and it's, it's violence. It's, I mean, it's incredibly, it's very upsetting with all the fake blood and people getting their, throats slit and people yeah. getting innocent people getting shot in the head. Uh, and then the, yeah, uh, there's plenty of, uh, you know, rape and rape, uh, adjacent, uh, um, <laughs> scenes. There's, um, uh, someone forced to commit suicide. There's Oof. a, uh, person who gets his, penis mangled there's it's such a nasty nasty movie and what's odd is that it's 87 Uh uh-huh it seems more like i'd say 76 yeah like it has that you know general genital mutilation seemed to be like a like as you say like a nasty piece of work and the way you describe it seems very 70s uh yeah well i'm uh, i'm telling you it's 1987 they're trying they're doing a throwback (laughs) yeah uh so i yeah i mean it's there's only, I mean, the thing's less than 90 minutes, and it, in terms of its construction, it moves along fine. There's a decent uh, car chase in it, but uh, I just found myself kind of looking at my watch because this is just not my kind of thing. Yeah. So, this, this I thing. have to write a review of it, too, for, you know, uh, for the home video, home video hovel. So What I was going to say is uh, this thing... This is not your kind of thing. No. <laughs> uh, okay, so I saw a movie that I expected to like more than I did. Everybody is talking about how fucking great this movie is, and I thought I was going to like it, but I thought it was only okay, and that is Green Room. Oh, really? I thought you were going somewhere else. Where did you think I was going? Civil War. Oh, yeah, I guess there's that, too. <laughs> uh, well, I'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, yeah, Green Room. Uh, you saw it, right? Yeah. What do you think? I think it's uh, fantastic. I think I think it is. I I don't think it's as good as Blue Ruin, right? But it, I also don't think it it's sets its sights as high as Blue Ruin. It's it essentially sure, it a, sure doesn't. It's a, essentially a, a exercise on a so the subgenre of 
whatever you want the the assault on precinct 13 rio bravo yeah uh, <laughs> subgenre like an action chamber piece, one could say. Uh, yeah, but a horror. Yeah. Like, or horror-informed or just horrific. Um, and I think within that framework, it's a, it's one of the best examples of that kind of, that kind of story because the storytelling and the narrative and the characterization are all so tight. And there's, like with Blue Ruin, there's no, I don't think there's any fat on the movie. I agree with you, and I'm on I'm on board from a storytelling and character standpoint. Though I would have liked to I would have liked a little bit more development for, of uh, Patrick Stewart's character, um, just a little bit. Uh, I'm on, I'm fine with the, a a tightness in storytelling, but I f- I thought that there was also kind of a tightness in uh, in style and in the violence that I thought was. Uh, I don't know. I couldn't. It's weird. I obviously this is not the type of movie that you're meant to take joy in, but it's one you're supposed to enjoy. Mm-hmm. You know, and the way the violence was handled, I just didn't. I didn't enjoy it. So my first thought is like, well, if I'm not going to enjoy the violence, then that means that for me, I need to I need to assign it some kind of significance. Except now. They didn't do the job for me to actually care about these characters. So now I have, hmm. so the violent aspect of the film, I felt nothing towards. I care about the characters. I care about them in this, insofar as like, well, I'm pretty sure they don't deserve this. <laughs> uh, but that's, that's kind of as far as I, as I go. Um, you know, to, that's the thing. I don't know, but just, he even like shades in some of the neo-Nazis to where like Eric Edelstein's character. Eric Edelstein and, and uh, Macon Blair. Macon Blair. Those two I found very interesting. Um, and uh, and yeah, I think I think from a character standpoint, I think Macon Blair is the one that I I latched onto the most, and I think there's a certain uh, a certain perverse uh, intrigue in that that the that the character that we latch onto the most. I mean, obviously, you know the 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 punk band like we're we're on board with them, um, and I I get enough of a sense of who they are, but I get a sense of who they are in the same way that I get a sense of who the characters in the third or fourth Friday the Thirteenth are, which is like, okay, yeah, I got you. You're the tough guy, all right. Mm-hmm. You're the quiet, soulful singer. Got it. And you're this and that, and then then they die. But when I watch Friday the Thirteenth, I can take joy in the creativity of the killings. I cannot do that in this. Uh, and so if I can't do that, then I got to be able to relate to something else. But the film's given me nothing else to latch onto. Hmm. Um, it's still enjoyable overall. It's still a fun exercise in pacing and, and it's very taut, Mm -hmm. I think is a good way to describe it. Um, I was excited to see Patrick Stewart play that character and he plays the character that is there. And I feel like I do not understand him. I don't know him. I feel like if anything, you could have developed him through his relationship with Macon Blair, even just one more scene. There's one little moment where he kisses him on the head, Mm -hmm. uh, because he appreciates a thing that he did. And I like moments like that, and I would have liked not a lot, but maybe one more scene between the two of them where Patrick Stewart understands. It's like he can tell, like, this is a guy who is on board, but maybe not as on board as these other guys. And so, and you could either have him be fatherly to him or threatening to him, or maybe both at the same time. And I thought that would have been an interesting place to go that would at least given us a better idea of how Patrick Stewart runs things, at least in his tone. Um, but yeah, it just seemed like, again, it's still a, it's, it's a fine movie. I didn't dislike it while I was watching it, but once it was over, I, it did not stick with me and the way Hmm. people have talked about it. Uh, it, it might've been that I saw it too late. Because by the time I saw it, you know, I'm looking on Letterboxd, I'm seeing one five-star review after another, people saying it's perfect, and it's just like, well, you know, it's not, it certainly isn't that, compared to Blue Ruin, which I think might be perfect, Yeah, uh, you know, Green Room, I think, uh, leaves a lot to be desired. All right. I'm Let's, sorry, you looked, you looked like you were kind of deflating as I was talking. Did I bum you out? No, I just, maybe it's just that I'm tired. Okay, fair it's, enough. the uh, middle of the night at this point. Uh, but I saw a movie that I'm so excited to talk about. Okay. Because I was on the fence about seeing this movie. Okay. It had great reviews. I love this guy's two movies ago. Okay. But I did not like his last movie. All right. The director's name is John Carney. The new movie is called Sing Street. Oh, yeah. Uh, the movies I'm talking about are Once, which is great. Yeah. And Begin Again, which is... Oh, which I heard terrible. Dreadful. <laughs> yeah. um, and... Uh, 
Whew, sigh of relief. Sing Street <laughs> is delightful. Okay. It's wonderful. It's the kind of movie I like. Uh, I just had a big smile on my face a lot of the times, and I looked over at my wife and saw that uh, she was also smiling. It's the kind of movie that you smile a lot at. Um, even though, uh, like, um, and I talked about Viva being uh, familiar and predictable, you Sing Street generally plays with the a lot of the same coming of age young romance uh conventions and tropes that we're used to it doesn't really yeah. tread a lot of new ground as far as that goes but uh it's done with a um an emotional honesty um and characterization and a great sense of humor and then this thing that John Carney does best that um worked in once and yet felt completely hollow and begin again, which is a truly un, uh, bridled enthusiasm and passion for music and what music can, mm-hmm. can do as a way of, uh, helping a person express or experience emotions. That's how I feel about things. Billy Elliot. That's how, what I've always liked about that one. Okay. Uh, in terms of dance. Yeah. Or, I mean, yeah. it's definitely related to the music, but like that one moment when he's dancing and you can clearly tell that like he's, fighting back tears and rage. Mm-hmm. It's such a, such a powerful moment. I gotta watch that again. Um, but yeah, the, the, the music's good and, uh, the, the comedy is on point. Um, there's, uh, uh, a couple of recognizable faces, including, um, Aiden Gillen. Um, yeah. Uh, as, as the, as the father. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I definitely recommend it. If you like me, if you loved once, which mm. is most people. Yeah. Um, and if you were really let down by, by begin again, um, which is most people who saw begin again, yeah. uh, definitely check out sing street. I know I'm a little, you know, I feel this is the thing about being a critic is that seeing a movie, paying to see a movie in a theater and then, which is great. I, I expect people, I, that's, that's what I hope that's, people do. That's what they do. That's what, and that's what I want. I want to, yeah, I don't want to just go to press screens all, all the time, but sometimes I feel like giving my opinion on a movie, either something that is like, um, you know, if it's 15 or more years old, then yeah. it's like a revisiting thing. Or if it's something that is just about to come out or has just come out, then yeah, my opinions were something for some reason. I feel like giving a critical opinion of a movie that's been out for three weeks or so sometimes feels like, oh, what am I doing this for? And I feel like that's sad, but that's become what movie going has, movie going has become yeah. so much about the opening weekend. Yeah. Um, even, and I think that even has trickled down a little bit to smaller releases like this. Sometimes I feel like, I guess everybody saw sing street, but that's not true. Yeah, it's if anything, you could say, I guess everyone has seen it that is going to see it. But that's the thing. That's not true either. When when you're saying this, it's it's well, if you haven't seen it and you can see it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But that's Sing Street is an example of one of those movies that I saw several trailers for and never quite knowing when it came out. And then it's like, oh, (laughs) I guess we're here. Yeah. Um, uh, Okay. A movie that does not fit that description, a movie that uh, everyone knew when it was coming out, was Captain America, was and is Captain America Civil War. A movie that I was very, very excited about, as everybody was, and my opinion is in the minority on this one. Uh, I think it is fine. I was really ready for this to be, like, astounding. And there are people that say it's the best Marvel movie out there, and I would say you haven't seen any of them. Because... I've, it's of the, I think it's the wor- it's the worst of the Captain America movies. It's the worst of the Avengers movies, which it basically is because um, it's got all the characters except for Thor and Hulk. Um, and why aren't they in it? Because you know Thor is on another planet and Hulk is uh, well. Okay, so as far as the story goes, Thor is on his you know in Asgard and Hulk is like uh, MIA. Like he's he's keeping himself out of things because okay. he's worried that's the story in my view. And I, I think that like, they're just too powerful. Like it's one thing when they're fighting armies or when they're fighting, you know, galactic, uh, enemies, but when they're fighting mere mortals, Thor and Hulk are way too, um, uh, Oh, what's the word? I can't think it's late. 
you know, a very specific, yeah. formidable. They're formidable. way too formidable. Okay. Um, I understand in the, uh, I haven't read it, but in the Civil War comics, mm-hmm. Thor was dead at that point. Oh gosh, I have no idea. Okay. But I also know that in the Civil War comics, it, it involves so many more people than like the 12 people involved in this film. Um, including, you know, the X-Men and that kind of thing and other people that, uh, that uh, they don't have the rights to. Yeah. Um, so... I have a few problems with the film. One is that as we see in the, in the, in the trailers and stuff, this seem the, the in, in initial disagreement seems to come with, well, there's this thing called the, the Sokovia Accords where, you know, the, the Avengers cause way too much collateral damage. And so, uh, the United Nations want to put them under UN jurisdiction. Iron Man is on board with this. Captain America is not. He doesn't like the idea of being subject to the will of so many different countries, each with their own agenda. Whereas Iron Man is like, well, we are basically vigilantes right now, and who's to say we're right? And so I can, so you can kind of see both. I, mm-hmm. I can see both points of view. Um, and my thought is like, oh, this is exciting. Uh, we're going to have characters that we like and that we've come to like and know they're going to literally fight each other due to a philosophical disagreement. And that idea was so exciting to me. Um, but then they drop it pretty quick and then it simply becomes about Bucky or about the winter soldier and that he's accused of something that everyone seems to think that he has done, but Captain America believes in him, and he believes that there's something else going on, and suddenly the lines are drawn over, well, some people are are on board with Cap, some people are on board with Iron Man, and now they all have to fight. And it's just like, ugh, I get why you do it. I I get why you did that because, you know, you're able to show the loyalty of Captain America, and you're able to show... Um, something tangible like, oh, Bucky didn't do it, so we should all fight for him or whatever it is. Um, but to me, it's much more invigorating to have it be a philosophical disagreement. It requires a lot more character development. It requires a lot more uh, discussion, but it doesn't have to be a dry discussion. Um, it's a conversation that you can then go back home and talk with your friends or your spouse about and you you could each come out on different sides like the big campaign is you know pick a side but when the when the plot when the actual conflict comes in it's like there's only one side whereas if it's about that philosophy there in fact are two sides and that i found invigorating and the fact that they dropped it i think is very frustrating because i think it shows that they don't have a great deal of faith in their audience from a philosophical and thematic standpoint uh the other thing is I feel like the action is not done well and the overall tone of the film is not done well. Like we are watching heroes fight each other and fight the fight each other rather brutally. But the film doesn't seem to understand that this is important. Um it treats it like any other any other superhero movie in the MCU. And it's like no no no. This is a titanic development. So don't treat it like any other film. And then the big, the big battle, the climactic battle between all of these heroes, they shoot it on like the tarmac of a of an of an abandoned airport. Like it's flat, it's boring, and it just seems so safe and gray and bland. And we're again, we're watching characters that are that we love and that we recognize are all good beating the hell out of each other, and that's all well and good, but it's like it feels like it should be in a more uh i don't know cinematic setting because this is a big deal like this mm-hmm. should feel almost operatic um in its tragedy and it feels they should like in an opera house they should, absolutely an abandoned opera house i'll take it you know and as much and while i do like this movie more than batman versus superman one thing that i put in my review is that Zack snyder at the very least batman V Superman uh, feels different than Man of Steel. Batman V Superman is much darker, and it seems to understand we are watching people we like being pitted against each other and possibly killing one another. This is a bad thing. This is an inherently bad thing, and the whole film feels like that. This doesn't feel like anything. Uh, and then the action itself is handled really poorly. Like They, they pair people off. Mm-hmm. They don't say, hey, we should pair off. It just kind of happens naturally. 
because like, okay, well, the characters who have this type of power fight each other, the characters that have the lack of powers fight each other. Compare that to like the Avengers where it's just constantly fluid and people are constantly weaving in and out of each other. It's just miles away from that. Um, I do think they use Ant-Man really well. I was going to ask. Um, Who does he pair off with? Uh, various. That Maybe that's why I like the way they use him is because his powers don't necessarily coincide with anybody. And so he gets used in a, ver- in a variety of ways and ways that if you're a fan of the character in the comic books, you will really appreciate and you will really enjoy. It's one of the more, more satisfying moments in the film when we see... Uh, they take that character in new in a new direction. Um, is and I guess I don't know if this is a spoiler, but I guess by the time people have seen it, right? Wait, no, it comes out today. They've probably seen it. It's fine. Is Evangeline Lilly in the no. movie? Okay, I knew that was what you were going to ask. I myself was wondering about it, but no. Hmm. Um, I do like everything with Spider Man. They okay. do a lot of good Spider Man stuff. I'm excited. Uh, they they write him well. They play him well. They use him well. And that's the thing is in the action sequences, because Spider-Man has a very specific way that he fights and because Ant-Man has a very specific gimmick to his fights, those moments, that's when the fight really comes alive. Uh, And then in the trailer, you see that uh, there's a moment when Iron Man is fighting Winter Soldier and Captain America, and it's just the three of them. That fight has emotional resonance. That's the fight that I want where there's a real intensity going on there and the characters really seem to understand the stakes and it, and it is soaked through in every punch. And I look at that. I'm like, that's the movie I should have been watching. Mm. I don't want to be watching business as usual. This is called civil war. Think of how horrifying the concept of civil war (laughs) is. Yeah. And the film just does not reflect that. And it still has its moments and the performances are still really good. And you know, there's some interesting (laughs) plot developments, but for the most part, I was really disappointed. Well, let's move on to something that wasn't disappointing. Okay. That, uh, you and I both saw together two nights ago. Okay. Uh, listeners of the show might remember that, we were sponsored by a Kickstarter a while back uh, for a movie called I Was a Teenage Wear Skunk. Yes. Um, and the, it it played uh, Tuesday night at the Vista Theater, one of the one of my favorite theaters in Los Angeles. My first trip my to the Vista, theater. and I loved it. Great. Uh, and we were kindly invited by the director, Neil McLaughlin. Is that right? No, that sounds right. Okay. Um, and uh, now I knew, look, this guy's a BP fan. He's obviously got taste. He gets it. He's obviously talented. Yes, and he gets it. So I wasn't expect. I was expecting to be entertained. Mm. But this movie's so so funny. It's hilarious. I did not expect this level of. I did not expect it to go so far beyond being the straightforward genre parody that the title yeah. suggests, which it is parody, and I think in a way uh, homage homage as well because it is it's not a movie that is just riffing on the tropes yeah. of these movies. It does that. It does a whole lot of other crazy shit, Yeah, but it also is about the way, the way that in a postmodern meta way, the way that these movies, these like, uh, these type of horror movies are about the friction between, uh, quote unquote, good kids mm-hmm and the sexual desires that they feel like, yeah. I mean, the movie has a very clear thematic through line about sexual urges, uh, and the, um, societal pressure to keep them held in. Yeah. Uh, and I found that really impressive, but mostly it's just crazy. This movie. And it's so funny. It is. I mean, yeah, like yourself, I went and expecting like, all right, there's going to be a genre parody, uh, I'm probably going to measure it based on how well it approximates the genre. Mm-hmm. And if it says something kind of, if it, if it shows that it's kind of sharp in how it pokes fun at these tropes, I'll consider it a success. I didn't think it was going to be anything amazing. And then no offense, Neil, like I thought it was going to be solid. Right. I didn't expect it to be this batshit crazy in the best possible way. And almost and almost uh, you you compare it to Wet Hot American Summer off mic, and I'd oh, say yeah. that's that's about right. Um, I would say it's almost like Airplane in that like they are going to throw everything uh-huh. they can at the screen, uh, 
things that have no business being jokes. They will then turn into jokes and they become the funniest jokes in the film. They will have, they, there is a, it feels wrong to single out any one thing because there's a lot of great stuff in there. And I, but the character of deputy Gary, Uh is one of the most amazing, like that's the thing. I don't know if this film is going to get like a theatrical release this year, but if it does, Uh I predict a pretty high ranking, uh, uh, BP's submission for supporting actress, uh, for, uh, deputy Gary. Yeah. Yes. That there, there's a clue that deputy Gary would be supporting actress. Yeah. Yeah, that already we're we're headed in an, in an odd direction. Uh, but this thing, it's it's Deputy Gary's played by a woman, but she gives a performance that is neither male nor female. <laughs> it is otherworldly and ridiculous, and I love it so much. I love every moment of it, even though her stuff tends to bring the story to a halt. Doesn't it took matter. me a moment. <laughs> At first, I'm like, why are we spending time with this character? Oh. <laughs> I want to spend every moment with this character. Um, but so many other characters are well played and well conceived. Yes. Yeah, so, well, cause she plays a double role. Yeah. Uh, she is also the main character's mom yeah. and the husband of her character, the main character's dad. Um, and the town sheriff yeah. is also a delight. Those two together, uh, especially are, uh, a power they're a team a great yeah. team they have they have chemistry in two completely different ways as uh-huh. the father and mother and as the sheriff and deputy yeah um and uh you know and then they have some tremendous sight gags where you know uh the sheriff has to go as as you will sometimes oh, yeah. find yeah don't give that these, one away i won't okay but you will sometimes find in movies like this that like, Oh, the, our main character has been hanging out with a bad kid. And so I got to go confront the bad kids. Parents. Oh, they're, they're in a crappy neighborhood and all that. And they're drunk. Oh, no wonder this kid turned out so bad. <laughs> so when the time comes for the sheriff to seek out the bad kids, father, it leads to one of the most ridiculous. And I would say, stupid <laughs> but in the best possible way because it's committed it's com- it is this movie is as committed as you can get david i love this movie so much yeah i, I really yeah and uh but and going back to the the way that it parodies the genre and the movies of the period or our idea of the movies of the period yeah. Uh, even lines that aren't jokes are funny because they're clever and spot on and in, in yeah. that in that way, like right at the beginning the, it starts with a couple necking at make out point yeah. or whatever, like um and uh the guy keeps trying to go in for a feel. Sure. And the girl says uh, I can't remember what the character's name is, she says, If I wanted to go study with an animal, I'd go to the zoo. <laughs> That's such a great line. Which isn't isn't really a joke. It's just like yeah. it's uh it's representative of what we think characters in those movies talked like. Yeah. As and just, said. and the fact that like, you know, stuff like this, this seems like an obvious joke, but I still, I, and maybe it is, but I always enjoy it. That like all the cheerleaders, like the, on the front, it just says sports <laughs> yeah, and that's it. <laughs> and also yeah. the only thing they ever wear is their Obviously, cheerleader. Cause that's who they are. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it is just, man, Listeners, I don't know if you're going to get a chance to see it any at any at any time, any times, if and when the time comes. I wish I could watch it again. <laughs> I know. I kind of want to email to. All right, Neil. Here's the deal. Uh, we gave your movie a good review in our uh, in our movie journal. In exchange for that, just give us more of that movie, please. <laughs> so yeah, it's, uh, it I, was I a just, delight. I just want a copy. Well done, Neil. Yeah. Thank, yeah, and thank you for inviting us. It was a good time. Uh, one more from that's it for you, right? That's it for uh, me. One more for me. I saw the new Rob Reiner movie, uh, being Charlie, um, which I think is representative of who Rob Reiner is now. It's just sort of basically and blandly competent, hmm. but, um, nothing special. It's, uh, and I feel bad saying that knowing the backstory of the movie because it is a movie about a, um, rich kid son of an actor who um goes through some serious drug addiction recovery mm. cycle problems and it's based on rob reiner's own son okay um and so i feel bad saying that it's so that it's bland but for something that was inspired by personal stories it does feel like um 
and I'm repeating what I started to write in the review that I haven't posted yet and we'll finish tonight. Um, but it starts to feel like it belongs to the genre of addiction recovery movies. You know, yeah. it's at, at this point, there are so many of them that you can just recognize certain things, you know, yeah. you can recognize, uh, you know, which characters are going to play which roles in this recovery and at what point in the movie he's going to fall off the wagon or you know, relapse right. or whatever. It just seems like break it's, his parents hard on. Yeah. But I'll say this. And again, this is what I'm going to write in the review tonight. So I'm sort of thinking it through right now. <clears throat> the fact that it is Rob Reiner's account of his son's story, um, is reflected in the fact that even though the, kid or the young man is the main character the parents are the most interesting characters sure um do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing i think it's a bad thing because we spend more time with the kid yeah um but it's good whenever the uh, his parents are played by uh carrie elwis um okay Rob reiner vet obviously yeah. and uh susan misner or meisner i don't know if you know who she is i know she's been in a bunch of stuff i know her chiefly from the americans which i don't think you've watched i haven't watched um but uh they're fantastic. Their scenes together and their scenes with the kid played by Nick Robinson, um, are, uh, are, are, are really strong stuff, even though they are just as, you know, recognizable and familiar as the other stuff in the movie. They're played really well and, and imbued with, a, an emotional honesty that the, the rest of the movie is, is missing. Um, and I hate to, you know, I, I say this all the time and it's, I, I have no problem saying this movie was poorly written. This movie was poorly, or, you know, not this movie necessarily, but any movie. Poorly yeah. I always feel bad about singling out actors and actresses as being bad because I, like I've said before, I don't understand what that craft is. So I feel like it's mean and baseless for me to point out. Yeah. That said, <laughs> The, uh, and now I'm drawing a blank on her name. Uh, and this is part of the reason I feel bad is she got so much crap for playing uh, the daughter on Homeland. Okay. Um, and partially is because that was a character that ran out of steam before the show did. Um, but she is here as the, I guess, romantic interest. Um, and she's just not up to the task. Yeah. I, I, she's just not. She's playing the, you know physically and psychologically struggling addict at she's playing to the back row at, at every, mm-hmm. at every point. And it's, uh, it, it's, it's not good. I think that's more, you know what? I'll be honest. If an actor or an actress is like stilted, that's one thing, but if they're giving a big performance, I'm more inclined to blame the director because a director can say, scale it back. And then they probably can. Right. But if the director's not saying that, you don't know. You assume, like, okay, I guess this is what I'm supposed to do. Like, it's always, it's, you know, in rehearsals and stuff, it's always good to go big and then mm-hmm. then pull stuff out. As opposed to, you're just not doing anything with it, and then the director can't say, uh, be better. Like, they can't do that. But they can <laughs> say, give me more, give me less. And it sounds like Rob Reiner should have said, give me less, but he probably didn't. Um, either because he didn't realize what she was doing or he thought it would, it was totally fine. Yeah. So I'd be more in that situa- situation. I'd be more inclined to blame him. Okay. Um, uh, do I want to say a couple of things? Um, as far as the, there's another actor I like named, his name's Ricardo Shavira. He was on desperate housewives and okay. he plays one of the counselors at the, uh, rehab place. He's, he's quite good. Um, Common is also in it, and he's he's common. I don't know. He's I don't mean to say he's. I'm not. I'm not making a pun. I'm saying yeah. he's himself. He's common with a capital C. Yeah, he's the character that Common plays in movies. Okay, uh, you know he's eh, he's fine for that. Um, one other thing I want to point out: Common, I believe, is in Run All Night, and he, he does a good job in that one. Yeah, I haven't seen Run All Night. It's good. I think you'd like. I want to see it. Tease for next week's main episode, our summer movie preview. Hmm. There's a movie coming out this summer called The Shallows, directed by the guy who directed Run All Night. The Shallows looks really good to me. That I'm really interested in. 
uh, and I really hope it's good. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, we'll talk about that uh, with our guest on the Summer Movie Preview episode. I predict he's not looking forward to it. Just a hunch. <laughs> uh, but I can't remember who said this originally. I remember uh, Lars von Trier, I think, is the one who said uh, that someone warned him not to become the cliche of the older male male director who, as he gets older, the women in his films get younger and more naked. Right. Uh, and I hate to say this of Rob Reiner cause he's such a, he's like a America's uncle and everything. But, um, yeah, there's some really young naked women in this movie huh. that, uh, it feels like, is there a reason for this? Or is this just Rob Reiner entering his, creepy old man face. I wonder if there's just an, uh, as somebody gets older, I wonder if it has less to do with them, like, you know, creeping on some uh, attractive younger women and more to do with like, how do I show that I'm relevant? How do I show that I still have an edge Okay, and that I'm not, that I'm, that I'm not just sanding everything off. Oh, I know. I'll just have some nudity in my film and then it will look risky. Right. I don't know. Do you think, I feel like that's not an unheard of idea. It's yeah, just, maybe like maybe, sh- that, maybe that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. It'd be easier as you get older to kind of just be like, "I'm making really light PG fare." You know, it's like, "No, no, I'm making a real movie." And as we all know, real movies have uh, vulnerability and nudity. And now I'm not. And even though I'm older, I'm not afraid to do it. And it's just, I don't know. Maybe it's that. It's hard. It's hard to know. Maybe. Let's. That's a. That's still not great because that's still like them more concerned about how they appear than uh, than anything else. But I think that's better than just a creepy old man. So <laughs> I hope you're right. Um, let's move on to TV. Okay. Um, I don't have. Uh, I just want to breeze, breeze through a couple things because I've, I've watched some premieres, but I haven't. <laughs> there have been episodes that have aired since them that I haven't caught up on. Mm-hmm. So I watched the first episode of The Night Manager, which we mentioned a little bit on our last main episode. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I really liked it and I'm looking forward to watching the rest of it. I didn't realize it was directed by Susan Beer, oh. a Danish director that I quite like. Um, she did brothers, not the, not right. the American remake with, uh, Toby and Jake, Yeah, but, um, the, the original, uh, I liked that movie. And then I watched, uh, the first episode of inside Amy Schumer, which we talked about on, Hey, watch this first episode of the, of the fourth season. Um, and like a lot of people, I was mostly pretty disappointed by it. Mm. Um, you can hear me and Paul go into this on detail, but, uh, I'm going to repeat something I said on, Hey, watch this. All right. New Yorkers and general musical theater nerds. Okay. America does not have Hamilton fever, a very small and obnoxiously vocal portion of America. You guys have Hamilton fever and uh, maybe you should stop cramming it down all our throats because most of us don't care. David, here's what I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm looking at you. I'm listening to you and I hear you and me back in 1999 doing bus stop and everybody's singing their fucking show tunes and they're punching me for saying Macbeth, you know, in the theater. And well, you don't do that. Ugh. And meanwhile, you and I are just like, oh, good God, we're just going to go watch The Simpsons. Yeah. Like, it's just... But I, here's the thing. I like show tunes. Maybe I'm... Again, I'm repeating things that I said in Hey, Watch This. Maybe it's my problem that I'm being limiting in what I'm allowing a show tune to be. Okay, fair enough. Because, yeah. like, I don't know. Sanitized hip-hop does not seem like a show tune to me. Yeah. And I'm not just saying this about hip-hop. I also hate most rock musicals sure uh for the same for the same reason i guess i like my musicals sort of classically musicalish well and it's in one terms of, of their music it could be one of those things where in in an attempt to bring these things that are not standard musical theater into the world of musical theater they are going to water them down because they're now appealing to an audience that isn't usually into that kind of thing so it's just like it's bad. They're bad show tunes. They're bad uh, rock songs. It's a rock opera. That's what it is. And she's like, yeah. I'm not, you know, it's like in this case, the chocolate and peanut butter just ruined each other. Um, you know, just turned into arsenic somehow um, um, in your opinion. But yeah, but so this is what I'm saying. This is my way of getting to Amy Schumer did an extended 
Hamilton inspired sketch with, of course, Lynn Manuel Miranda yeah. was in the sketch because that's what happens when you be once you're famous and you have a sketch show, then you just get to have people show up all the time. Um, <laughs> and you know, last season she did the thing with uh, I'm sure I don't know if you ever watched the, the sketch. 12 Angry Men thing, uh, no, no, yes, that was great too. Maybe it was two seasons ago, uh, yeah, no, that was great, but uh. Um, those they weren't playing themselves, so I don't right. have that. Uh, I'm talking about the last fuckable day sketch with Julie yes. Louis Dreyfus and Patricia Arquette and Tina Fey, and I think that was this sort of thing that I think was really cleverly done and actually yeah. used them to great purpose. This is essentially Lin Manuel Miranda standing and essentially he's watching the sketch with the rest of us. Is essentially how this went, well, and then and, oh, Quest loves in it too. And it could be a situation where it's like. You like Hamilton? <laughs> We're part of that too, kind of. Uh-huh. Although it's you know, Inside Amy Schumer is a popular enough show; they don't necessarily need to hitch their wagon to any to some other pop culture phenomenon. Yeah, uh, yeah. There were, and there were um, some good sketches uh, and some. I don't know. Uh, I, it didn't make me that excited to watch the rest of the season. Some mm-hmm. people have said it got it gets better, and some people have said that it does not. So. Okay. Uh, We'll see. Uh, what's your first TV show? It's Survivor. You can go listen to my podcast about it. Okay. Then I will also talk about The Return of Silicon Valley. Okay. Um, a show that I liked in its first season but didn't love and that I now that I loved in its second season. And I'm really excited for this third season, um, not least because friend of the show Stephen Topolowski yeah. uh, is um, going to be a, a recurring presence on the show. Nice. Um, the, uh, I guess, spoilers for the show so far. Um, but, um, season two ended with Richard Thomas Middleton's character, the main character getting voted out of being CEO of his own company. He Mm -hmm. still works with the company, still on the board, but the board voted him out of CEO. Steven Tobolowsky plays the experienced tech CEO that they bring in to replace him. And he's a really nice understanding guy to the point where it's like, this guy's going to be a villain. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a Steve Jobs kind of situation. Kind of. He's yeah. He's like, he's so friendly and understanding in this first episode um, and wins over TJ Miller's character so quickly. And then by the end, win seems to be winning over Richard so quickly that it's like, this is going to be fun to see, to watch. Great. Yeah. It sounds like fun. All right, um, and then we watched the we both watched the Amazing Race, That's of right. course, as usual. This was um, uh, I don't know what, what did you think. I, mean, I think it's a great episode, partially because um, one of the maybe the main contender uh, was eliminated. It is rare, I think, to go into the final episode um, really not not merely not knowing who's going to win, but anybody could win. Right? Yeah. Like it could happen that way. Um, whereas, when the uh, when the main when the most competitive team gets eliminated before the end, I always think of when Steven Seagal dies in executive decision. Yeah, <laughs> and, and then, then everyone kind of else. Like, is oh, I thought of, he was the hero of the movie. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought. And meanwhile, everyone else is just kind of standing around, shrugging, like, "Oh wait, we're not qualified <laughs> to do this." Um, but yeah, I mean, it could be any of these teams. They've all shown themselves to be fair, fairly uh, formidable or formidable. Um, and, uh, you know, there are the, there are teams that if they won, I'd be happy about it. And then there are teams that it's like, yeah, all right. You know, if it if it was, uh, Tyler and Corey, Corey, right. Yeah. I love them. I like them. I like Ashley and Bernie. I know I, I have, since you made a case for Ashley and Bernie, I have yeah. really come around on them. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. Uh, and they are the reasons that that the Frisbee players got out. Yeah. Like they, they, there's not a lot of strategy in the world of amazing race, but they found that bit that they could do that thing of, for those who haven't uh, watched the show yet, um, too bad. <laughs> um, that thing of you turning someone who, you know, is past you to ensure something that I don't remember that being talked about before last season. Yeah. Not and really, yeah, but it's a thing that's been done by accident. Yes. But I w- and I wonder if that's why suddenly players are aware of it because these players I don't think would have seen the last season right based on the production I, schedule. I don't think so. It's hard to it's hard to know. I definitely know how it works for Survivor, but I don't know about Amazing Race. Uh, yeah, um, so it's interesting that uh, two seasons in a row we, we've had people think of that, even though it didn't work out last season. Yeah, um, it it very much did here. Yeah, 
Yeah, and it's and literally like the next. I believe the frisbee people were like the third team to show up to the U-turn. So it's a good thing that Bernie and Ashley did it. Yeah. Um, so and yeah, who else is left is um, uh, Dana and Matt, yeah. uh, unfortunately, and Sherry and Cole. Yeah. And Dana and Matt, I don't. I. I. I it's not that I don't necessarily. It's not that I don't want them to win. It's just like, yeah, all right, whatever. Who cares? Um, Sherry and Cole. Uh, They've grown on me to the point that, like, I don't root. I'm not rooting against them. Uh, Sherry, especially, has shown herself to be incredibly resilient, um, both physically and emotionally. And I like that. So, like, if they wound up winning, that'd be kind of exciting. But I also don't like the idea of Cole winning things. So, um, you know, like, everyone else I know who watches the show really dislikes Cole because my wife is like, oh, this guy. It's so on my nerves. He doesn't, I mean, he doesn't bother me that much, but it's more just like, all right, kid, you need to grow up and, uh, losing the amazing race would be a good step towards that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mostly hope it's, um, either Tyler and Corey or Bernie and Ashley. Yeah. They're, they're my favorites. I, I don't dislike Sherry and Cole, like, or Cole, I guess, yeah. like you guys do. I don't want to see Matt and Dana win. Yeah. Um, I want to see them lose and Matt realize, oh, Dana's a drag on me. It's time yeah. to break up or, with her and move on. You know what you should do? What's that? I'm saying if for this relationship between Dana and Matt to work, she just needs to be carrying a chicken at all times because she was nicer to the chicken than she had been to Matt the entire time and nicer to Matt when she had the chicken. Yeah. Then for some reason, holding a chicken and carrying a chicken across a bridge just really calms it, it down. It's, it's, yeah. It's like a security blanket for her. <laughs> uh, she needs to get herself a pet chicken. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's yeah. A therapy pet. It can wear a little vest. It can come into Walmart with her or what have you. Uh, <laughs> you think she works at Walmart or she will go I'm visit saying Walmart? When you go, when you have one of those dogs, oh, that's service right. dogs with a vest, yeah. she's going to have a chicken with a vest. It can come to the movies. It can, yeah, go, go to go shopping, th- that sort of thing. There is also on this season of survivor, there is a calming presence from a chicken, uh, because there are sometimes rewards where you can win a couple of chickens and they will lay eggs for you. Uh, and then you can also eat them eventually. So they got two chickens, eat the chickens, eat the chickens. Okay. Uh, they got two of them. One, they killed and ate the other one they used for eggs, but there's this guy, (coughs) this little guy who I believe is Vietnamese, but I don't remember exactly, but he, you know, he's small, he's kind of adorable and he's like a big nature guy. So the second chicken he named Mark uh-huh. and Mark's not going anywhere. Like they, they're down to a final five and, uh, the guy who just went out at six, he's like, he goes, Oh, Mark's going to be around till day 39. He's going to outlast all of us. <laughs> uh, and that does seem to be the case. Nobody seems to want to kill and eat Mark, even though is they this, are starving to death. Is this a common thing on survivor that they kill? Yes. Their own food. Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. It's, I mean, it's not a thing that's expected of you, but if you get chickens, you're going to eat those chickens. And then every once in a while, somebody will get like, oh, I got a, I got a shark that, that happened once. A live Um, shark? Yeah. So in season. How how are you given a shark? No, you're not given a shark. They got it. He got the shark. He was out in the water. A shark, uh, a shark that was like four feet long, got his arm and latched onto his arm so he's like, all right, fine. So he ha- held on to it, bit it, because that's who he is. He's the guy that won the first season. Um, bit it, and this was in season eight. He came back. He bites the shark and then just drags it as it's latching onto his arm, just trying to take a chunk out of it. Uh-huh. Uh, and he just drags it to the beach and then just really murders it. And, uh, and it's like, now we're all eating shark. Yeah. With a little bit of him in it. With a little bit of him. But you know what? Wait, that's, is this the guy who won the first season and then didn't pay his taxes? That's him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. He's uh, a delight. Every I, joke's I like been made about that. It. Yeah. But the idea that he thought he could get away with that. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, you're pretty visible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, so uh, so chickens. Uh, it's a chicken kind of season. Wow, do they season. get uh, complaints? Like from, you know, PETA and the like, I imagine? Um, No. I mean, I think they... They might if like 